Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. I'd like to start today with a little quiz of your Bible knowledge. It's a simple one multiple choice question here today. According to the Bible, who was the pastor of the congregation at Ephesus? A. Timothy, B. Paul, or, or C. John? How many say A. Timothy? Nobody's going to raise their hands for anything here. I knew it. <laughs> how about Paul? Some think that. Uh, how, how about John? Okay, there's also another option. It's all of the above. And that is correct, and so all of you are right, except you that didn't raise your hands. <laughs> Paul preached uh, in Ephesus on his second missionary journey, and he left uh, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila there to carry on the work for a while, and then he returned there on his third journey, and, and he stayed there for two years and three months, and after that, then he left Timothy as pastor of the congregation, and we learned about that um, when we were going through First and Second Timothy. And sometime after Timothy serving the congregation, the Apostle John became the pastor there, and he served for a number of years until he was exiled by the Roman Emperor Domitian to the Isle of Patmos. And while exiled on that island, John received a vision from God, and that vision is recorded for us in the last book of our New Testament. And so today is the first Sunday in Lent, and during the seven Sundays in Lent, we are going to be looking in the book of Revelation and at the letters of Jesus to the seven churches at Asia Minor. And if we hadn't canceled our Lenten service this last Wednesday, you would have been introduced to the theme that we're going to be focusing on on our Wednesday nights of our Lenten services, the I Am Claims of Christ. And they're all found in the Gospel of John, and they're ones such as, I am the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You're familiar perhaps with those. Well, as we look now in, in the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, we're going to see some more extraordinary claims that Jesus makes about himself. He starts out each of the letters to the seven churches with a self-description. And so today we look at the letter from Jesus to the congregation at Ephesus. And I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as we read in chapter 2 of Revelation, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you, bear with, <clears throat> how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, <coughs> And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let us pray. Lord God, as we think of uh, John there on the Isle of Patmos and this vision that he had of, of you, Jesus, the exalted one, and the things that you then proclaim uh, for the churches there in Asia, Lord, they're for our church and churches all over America and all over the world even today. So we pray that you open our ears and our hearts to understand and then to apply, Lord, to our lives and to our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's kind of fascinating to me to think of Jesus himself dictating a letter to a congregation. What would he say if he was sending one to our congregation, to Maranatha Free Lutheran here in Glendon. As we look at each of these letters to the seven churches during Lent, we're going to seek to then apply the content of that letter to our own individual hearts and to our congregation. But before we look at this first of the letters of Jesus to congregations, I think we need to step back a bit and look in the chapter right before it because it really sets the scene for all of this. And John there describes how it is that he received this message from the Lord in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and, and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus is the first one he lists, and then the rest of the list is there, we'll be covering during Lent. Um, and then he says in verse 12, When I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, John saw Jesus. He saw Jesus like he had never seen him before. He saw the exalted Christ. He had caught a, a little glimpse of that um, before, um, when he had seen the glory of the Son of Man um, and the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and, and James up there. And on that day, um, Jesus had been there on the mountain and, and, uh, with two of Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, and Jesus Garments then shone so bright as, as light, and, and his face like, was like the sun. And, and those disciples, as they saw him, bowed their faces to the ground before him that day. Well, now on this day, as John saw this vision of the exalted Christ, his face was so bright, it was like the sun shining in full strength. And if you ever look at the sun when it's really bright, you can't look long. And you can't really see anything afterwards because it's so blinding. It was so overwhelming to John that, that he fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. Well, what did John see and experience that day? As we look there, we see in, in chapter 1 then, um, that he saw Jesus' clothing was like a, a long robe and a gold sash. Uh, he was wearing a stately garment like the robe of a priest, and the gold belt then reflects royalty. And today we do recognize Jesus accompanying those offices of priest and king. Well, his appearance is also described as with white hair and fiery eyes and a bronze feet and, and a shining face. And, and a white head is, is one worthy of honor by age, and, and it shows wisdom and dignity. Uh, his eyes are like a flame of fire that, that reflects the penetrating insight of Jesus uh, as one who can see all things and who is sovereign then over all of human history. Uh, his feet like burnished brass or bronze um, or, or, yeah, or bronze or brass, it, it portrays then strength and stability. And then his face shining like the sun in full strength. 
and all of that really then is a description of, of just really a start of the utter awesomeness of, of the exalted Christ, the one who had left his throne there up in heaven to then become this human baby and grew up to be a man that walked the face of this earth and, and taught people and healed diseases and, and then humbled himself, as Philippians tells us, by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And, and then it says after that in Philippians that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Well, John's further description of the exalted Christ in Revelation chapter 1 also then tells us that his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls or some other large waterfall, the sound is deafening. And it's awe-inspiring to consider the power that is behind it. And so it is with the exalted Jesus when he speaks. And it's important that we notice from John's vision also concerning Jesus, his possessions. Um, in verse 16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And we'll also see then describing his location is, is in the midst of these seven lampstands. And we need John to explain those things to us a bit, and, and he does that as you look at the last verse of chapter 1 in, in Revelation. And there it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on his right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so even though we think now of Christ as the one who was crucified, resurrected, and ascended back up into heaven, um, and is exalted now above everyone else, he's also here then pictured as one who is in the midst of congregations of believers here still on this earth. And it was John's description of Jesus <clears throat> That, that we just looked at, but now we also see in, in uh, chapter 1, Jesus describing himself. And he there says that he is the first and the last, that is, the, he is the eternal one. He was there before all things were even created, and he will be even after this present world is no more. And he also says about himself that he is the living one who was dead and is alive forevermore. And that terminology of the living one, that, that's a title that we have in the Old Testament that, that contrasts really then the true God with all of the idols which are dead and never really were alive. And Jesus is saying about himself that he is the living God, as opposed to all those idols that really weren't gods at all. And he's also saying that he is the living Son of God who died. And remember now, John here, who's recording this here, was there at the cross. He watched and he saw as Jesus died. And Jesus says about himself, he is the living one who was dead, he was buried in the tomb, but, but he's there no longer. He bodily rose from the dead, never to die again. He's alive forevermore. And along with this, Jesus says one other thing that's very interesting here. Um, he says he has the keys to death in Hades. Now, Hades is, is the, think of it as the place of the departed spirits, waiting for the time of Christ's return, the resurrection, and so on. And, and so, as you think about somebody having keys here, well, keys give you access to a place, and, and so that you can come and go as you wish. Well, th this winter, with the weather as it's been, I, I finally got so desperate to get some exercise that I went and I paid for a month at a fitness club. And, and just in case you can't tell, um, I actually have been going there. 
But anyway, um, once I paid for my month there, I was given a key fob. And that lets me come and go any time, day or night. Uh, unlimited access, you might say. And not only that, but with this place, um, I also was given um, access for a friend three times during that month. Well, well Jesus is telling us here that, that since he died and rose again, he now has been given the keys to death in Hades. And, and that means that, that not, not only can death in Hades no longer hold him, but he has the, the authority over that domain for himself and for his friends. You know, my key fob will let my friends in uh, to the fitness club, but, but his keys will let people out who died. Uh, he, he can release people from death in Hades, it's saying. Then he also says about himself that he holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And remember now what it told us in chapter 1 is that the lampstands are the seven churches of Asia Minor that these letters are written to. And when Jesus is saying here that he walks among the seven churches, he's saying that since the resurrection, his presence is no longer localized to just one place at one time, but, but it's in all of the churches all of the time. And that's still true today. And so we recognize then his Holy Spirit lives in all true believers and is also among us as a congregation. Well, the seven stars in Jesus' right hand, it, it tells us, are the seven angels of the seven churches. And so when this letter to the church at Ephesus, for instance, um, starts out with this wording, well, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Well, who is he addressing? Who is that angel? As far as I can understand, either it's a particular angelic being um, that is a heavenly messenger to that congregation, or else, since the word angel in the original language here actually um, means messenger, it's possible it's referring to the overseers or pastors of each of those congregations who would then pass on that message to the members of the congregation. Well, let's look then at the message. Um, Jesus' message to the congregation at Ephesus. And he starts out by telling us the things that he knows about it. Some positive things, he says. I know. I know your works and toil and patient endurance. He knows the activities of that congregation. Literally, he knows that they have worked and they have toiled to the point of weariness. Church work can be exhausting, and, and Jesus is commending them then for their patient enduring the exhausting work. And then he also says, I know of your spiritual discernment, <clears throat> how you can't bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles, and, you, and, and they're not, and so you found them to be false. And, and you know, in, in New Testament times, there, there were some that were claiming to be apostles of Christ, but, but who denied about him that he actually was the Son of God in human flesh. And the congregation at Ephesus didn't tolerate such teachers. They declared that is false teaching. And it's an important thing for a congregation to have spiritual discernment and not tolerate false teaching, and that's still the case today. And we get our discernment as we weigh what we hear from those who are teaching with what we see in the written word of God. Well, furthermore, Jesus also says, I know about the congregation there at Ephesus. I know you're patient, enduring, of all ill treatment for my namesake. Um, they, they've been willing to be ridiculed, to identify with Christ rather than with the masses. And he says, and I know you're taking a stand on moral issues and hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Now the early church fathers described the Nicolaitans as a sect that claimed to be Christian 
yet they were openly indulging in eating meat that was sacrificed to pagan gods, and, and they were openly engaging in sexual immorality, uh, things which the Christian church had clearly declared they were to abstain from. And, and so, recognize about this congregation that Ephesus sent, they, they had a lot going for them. They were hard workers, patiently enduring the work. They had spiritual discernment, testing things to make sure they were, 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 uh, were true, and, and they were willing even to be ridiculed for Christ. And they hated the immoral practices of the Nicolaitans. The four very positive traits of the folks who made up this congregation. And Jesus mentions after that only one negative statement concerning the congregation. But it's important that we see what this negative thing is he addresses. He says, you've left your first love. The ESV says, but, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The congregation at Ephesus had been known earlier for being a very loving congregation. Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, commending them because he'd heard of their love that they have for all of the saints. But it seems something had changed. And you see, when people are new believers, they're often amazed at God's great love for them and that God sent his son to the cross to die for them, and they're just <clears throat> filled with love for him in return. And along with that, there's this genuine love for all fellow believers and a warm fellowship with them. But both of those loves can wane. Our love for God and for other believers can grow cold. Robert Mount says in commentary about it, a cooling of personal love for God inevitably results in the loss of harmonious relationships within the body of Christ. Perhaps congregations at Ephesus, in, in their eagerness to root out false teachings, had developed kind of a rigid orthodoxy that ended up even being suspicious of each other's beliefs. And, and, and in addition, it's possible they were losing sight of, of their own sinfulness and the amazing grace of God for sinners like themselves. In the uh, Free Lutheran Church, we understand that it is possible to be living in a close relationship with God at one point in your life and, and then to fall away from Him, even to the point of being eternally lost. And it doesn't happen quickly or easily, but very gradually, but it can happen. How does it happen? Well, just a couple weeks back when we had confirmation class here, we went through question number 357. The question was, can a baptized person fall away from God? And the answer was this. Yes, a baptized person can fall away from God by resisting or ignoring the Holy Spirit and by neglecting prayer, the Bible, and the Lord's Supper. If we lose sight of the Christian life being lived in a relationship with Jesus, we can fall into this mentality of it being just a belief system with some accompanying outward actions and we end up overlooking the heart aspect. And we may begin to ignore then the promptings of the Holy Spirit when he's convicting us of sin, or ignore his urging us to care for the needs of others. And if we also then neglect to read God's word, uh, and we less and less than hear the Holy Spirit's voice speak to us, and, and we neglect to talk to God in prayer, and, and there's this drifting that can occur without us even realizing it. And there is a real danger for all Christians that, that we end up then going through outward, um, outward motions, you might say, of Christianity, but, but losing sight of that personal relationship with Jesus as our Savior and Lord. 
Jesus follows his description of this congregation at Ephesus with an ultimatum. And the ultimatum he gives to the congregation, I think, can be summed up with four R's. First of all, he says, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Look back on when you first came to know Jesus, your Savior, and the love you experienced for him and, and for fellow believers. Remember the genuineness of that love. And you know, it, it can be a bit like a young couple that falls in love. You know, those early feelings, uh, when you're first in love, they can be powerful. But, but we come to know that they're unsustainable, those feelings. However, in a marriage relationship, that love needs to deepen. And that requires a nurturing of, uh, nurturing of the relationship. And, and um, many marriages fall apart because couples gradually spend less and less time together and gradually quit being open and honest with each other and disillusionment sets in. And the same thing can happen in our relationship with God. Except, if it does, it's because one of us changed and drifted. And it wasn't him. Jesus invites individuals and whole congregations to come back to him. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent of your wandering from the Lord and turn back to a relationship with him. Return to those things you did when you first knew the Lord. Come back to a priority of time in God's word and talking freely with him in prayer. Come back to a love for the brethren and eagerness to spend time in fellowship together. Remember, repent, and return. And then he says, or, or else. Or else I will remove your lampstand out of its place. That is, Christ will remove the congregation from its place. And it seems to me that this happens in a, in a couple of ways. When love for God and for fellow believers grows cold, um, a congregation gradually falls apart. Some of the people just quit assembling together. They quit coming. Others that keep coming together either bicker and pick on each other or, or they together become judgmental about everybody that isn't in their clique. And either way, the congregation loses something essential and hearts change and, and, and it'll gradually fall apart. Some of you have uh, perhaps been hearing on the news here about the spiritual revival that's been taking place on the campus of Asbury University in Kentucky. And what started with just a few students lingering after a chapel service to sing and to pray together um, has continued and, and spread to affect thousands. And, and over a two-week period, uh, more than 50,000 people have descended on that small campus um, to experience a little bit of what's happening there. <clears throat> As there's, there's been um, nonstop prayer and, and praise and worship going on for over 400 hours. And, and it's beginning to spread from there to other colleges as well. And Pastor Ryan referred to it here, and, and uh, that will be the focus of, of the um, new members class, or I should say of the adult class today. New members class um, will be covering something a little bit different. But um, as we think about revival, um, as this letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus is calling for revival in that congregation, I believe there is a need for revival in congregations all over America today. A need to come back to, to a focus on a personal relationship with Jesus as Savior and Lord. And, and a fresh love for Jesus and for brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to look at one other thing here, though. Besides the ultimatum that Jesus gives the congregation at Ephesus, there is a promise that he gives. 
a promise to him who overcomes. To him who, over, to him who overcomes, or, or in some translations, to one who conquers, or to the victor. That is, to those that persevere and keep the faith and don't allow Satan to pull them away from a relationship with Jesus, to them Jesus says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I've always loved that word paradise. I, I found out that it actually has a Persian roots, um, meaning a, a park or a garden, and that's really just the start of the picture of that eternal home uh, that's awaiting for believers in Jesus Christ. But according to rabbinical teaching, paradise is threefold. There, there is the original paradise, which is the Garden of Eden, where, where the tree of life stood um, before Adam and Eve fell into sin. And, and then there's the paradise of, of souls in heaven. That's the abode of the redeemed between death and the resurrection. And then there's the final paradise of God. That's what this is referring to. That will be restored when Christ returns. And the tree of life will be there. And Jesus says he will grant to overcomers to eat from it at last. Paradise spoilt, paradise restored. Verse 7 concludes with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As far as I can tell, you all have ears today. And so this message is for you and for me. Remember, repent, return. And to him or her who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these letters. They cause us to do some um, personal soul searching and, and, and to consider our relationship with you. And, and Lord, for many of us, we've known you for years. Sometimes, though, we still uh, find ourselves drifting from that personal, daily living walk with you. And, and we pray that you would draw us to a, uh, a closer, um, a fresh perspective of that, Lord. That, that you would help us to live each day in, in repentance and faith. And, uh, Lord, wanting to hear from your word and talk to you and follow you in all that we do in our life. Lord, we pray for a revival among us here. And we thank you for what you're doing in Asbury and, and how that's spreading from there. Lord, you know of the, of the desperate need there is for revival all over our land. And we pray that that would begin in our hearts uh, with a fresh perspective of love for you and for uh, fellow believers. And Lord, we pray that you'd use us to, to make a difference, that this would be a place where that love is so reflected that others would be drawn into it and then drawn to you. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.